Hiya, hello, welcome to Walrus and the Bear, the podcast where Berlin gets a firm slap on the ass. Today, Walrus is joined again by the infamous Izan Choksi. Izzy, how are you doing? Hey, Walrus. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to go by my new name, Otter. I decided because you're Walrus, and that's to do with you know the sea and you know cold climates and stuff. Well, I decided, well, the hell, I'm going to be Otter. I want, I want some some slippery fur, some waterproof stuff going on. I'm going to be Otter. All right. So what have I been up to? Well, pretty much the same with you, working every day. Uh, you've been tour guiding quite a bit, so have I. Um, but I'm stoked to have you with me again to do the second part of our episode because I think we are, uh, yeah, we still have some unfinished business. Um, so in our first episode, we spoke about the history of the Jewish community in Berlin. Yep. And if you missed that episode, you might want to check that one out first. It'll give you an idea of how Jewish people first established themselves here in Berlin and how that thriving community was severely disrupted by the rise of the Nazis in the 1930s. So in this episode, part two, we focus on today's city and the engagement Jewish people have with it today. The thing that set everything in motion is our jobs as tour guides. We roam the streets of Berlin every other day, taking groups with us. And of course, one of the tragic histories we talk about is the Holocaust. So there's there's actually several stops in the city that allow us to talk about it as tour guides. Uh, of course, at the Holocaust Memorial, but also at the new synagogue. Or, for example, at the square where the, the book burnings took place. And one of the questions that we always get is what about the Jewish community today? What's it like? How many people live here? And how do they feel about the past? Yeah, what what about the Jewish community today? Well, I don't really know it. Well, me neither. Um, and hence an episode of Walrus and Otter was born. So suddenly you start to wonder about um, what it is that separates you from all the others. We started, of course, by asking in our immediate surroundings if people wanted to talk with us about what it means to be Jewish in Berlin. There were roughly 170,000 Jews living in Berlin in 1933, of which between six to 8,000 were still here in May of 1945. Today, though, it's a lot harder to measure. The fact is that a lot of people coming into the city today don't necessarily register themselves as being Jewish with the authorities. We only have a rough estimation that is between 40 and 60,000 people of Jewish origins that are in Berlin today. We asked our interviewees why Jewish people are attracted to a city that treated them so horribly in the past. And do they even think about the significance of being Jewish in Berlin? I grew up in Friedrichshain, very close to the riverside, um, Warschauer Straße. This is Max Cholik, a poet from Berlin. I was born in 87, so right before the wall came down. One of my first memories is still in the GDR, but um, I'm a very late offspring of what you may consider a third generation East Germans. Max is also Jewish. And when in 1993 the Jewish gymnasium in Berlin reopened, Max was one of the first of 27 students to attend. I went to school with about like this, this Jewish school in 93 at about 70% Soviet like former Soviet uh, uh, um, immigrants, not all of them Jews, most of them. And um, so I was really raised and grew up alongside um, um, this group, if you want so. 
And here it also started to dawn on us that we could not simply talk about Jewish people in Berlin as if they're all part of a single group or community. There's, I think, three, three main immigrant groups, or three main groups, let's say, in Germany. And this is the, um, the uh, Soviet Jews, it's the Israeli Jews, and it's the Jews that pro like came back in 45 um, or 47, which mostly either came back from exile or came back from, from the DP camps, really. They survived. All right, so let's break that down a little bit. So Max was talking about three different groups, German Jews that came back after the Second World War, them and their children, and then Jewish people who came after the fall of the Iron Curtain. There's a big influx of former Soviet citizens of Jewish origin coming into Germany after 1991. And in more recent years, there's been quite a lot of media coverage of the increasing amount of Israeli Jews coming to Germany, and to Berlin specifically. They all have their own backgrounds and many different reasons to migrate here. Do they themselves feel that they're part of a community here? Actually, I'm not connected to any of them. <laughs> neither strongly to the Israeli community, neither to the Jewish community. Um, it's a personal thing. It's not so much a community thing, I think. That is Yael Sharil. I'm very much part of this community of struggling artists or like, you know, like, which I, I deeply love and appreciate. Like, I, I think they're very courageous people, some of them. So, so why did Yael come to Berlin? I, of course, I knew that Berlin was kind of like the new art center of Europe and so on. And because I, uh, I'm working within the art field, then it's made sense to come here. Yaya comes from Israel, from Tel Aviv. So we asked her, what do her parents think about her leaving the state? My recent visit to Israel was, uh, we started talking about it, and I think they somehow also understood that Israel took a turn that they didn't really hope for, and they didn't really expect as well. So um, they understand my choice, but also they're kind of not, of course, not very happy about it, also on the personal level that, I mean, they don't want their kids to be away from them. Well, the same goes for my parents. It is obvious from talking with Yael that there were as many push as there were pull factors. Reasons to leave Israel and also to come to Berlin specifically. I think that people move here for a huge variety of reasons. I mean, you want to get away from your family, you want to... You got a really good job here, you... I don't know. I, I think I have a strong awareness of being a foreigner here, like as part of this movement to the city that creates competition in the city, makes it a bit more maybe difficult for locals um, in some aspects, uh, makes it really interesting for other locals in other aspects. Um, but as a Jewish person or Israeli person that moved here, I guess it has, yeah, it has that uh, feeling of um, somehow connecting to an alternative Jewish identity in a way uh, that uh, being outside of Israel enables. Of course, we, you and I are foreigners too. We're different in the sense that we come from another country and now live in Berlin. Is there, however, an extra layer to being Jewish in Berlin instead of just coming from another country? To speak with us about this is Tal Alon, journalist and author of Spitz Magazine, a Hebrew journal in Berlin. The initial reason for us uh, to move from Tel Aviv to Berlin was the uh, 
art scene in Berlin. My husband is a painter and artist and he was fascinating, fascinated by the scene here. We've heard that before, I believe. Now Tal also speaks about leaving Israel. And of course, we then have to mention the Milky controversy. The Milky controversy? Yeah. Or, or some people call it actually the Battle of the Milky. Please explain. I mean, some of the of the instrumentalization of Berlin uh, started with this uh, choco pudding debate. I don't know if you heard about it. So, this was there was a whole thing about uh, an Israeli posting on Facebook that a choco pudding uh, uh, in Berlin costs like third. Uh, um, as in Israel. Yeah, so basically an Israeli made a Facebook page protesting against the rising consumer prices and also calling for Israelis to migrate to Berlin. But you can understand that in a sense the political climate of Israel, this call for an emigration from Israel, didn't fall too well with the people back home. So even this positive thing became a negative thing in the process because they're saying, okay, so this is what you care about, how much your shoko pudding costs. For both Yael and Tal, their reasons for coming to Berlin are basically exactly the same as mine. I mean, they came because they heard about Berlin's open-minded, liberal, creative climate, and at the same time, its affordability. After Yael and Tal moved to Berlin and found their place here, more interesting questions started to appear. I only realized that after I moved here that um, there actually was an alternative Jewish culture already established in Germany before uh, the Second World War in 1933 and so on. And in a way, it was a really, um, for me now maybe, it is an interesting identity that I would like to explore. Yeah, these are questions that I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm dealing with uh, in particular in relation with my upraising of, of my children. Um, it's very, very important for me that they speak, read and, and uh, write Hebrew. Um, and, and why is that? Because uh, this is, I mean, the language is for me the crucial part of my Jewish identity. If anything, I think that it's somehow a Hebrew identity. It's not so much a Jewish identity. And I think that this is, um, this is why I don't see myself as part of the global Jewish uh, population. I really don't. What is that exactly, Hebrew identity? That's a really good question. <laughs> That's a really good question. I mean, I think that a lot of people are exploring that question now here, specifically in Berlin. Um, it's interesting because, in fact, a lot of the Israelis that moved here uh, are part of that group that are exactly uh, researching that specific question. It's like, what is a Jewish identity which is outside of the context of Zionism? That and more is what we're going to explore in the second half of this episode. We'll speak more about the Hebrew language, we'll speak more about identity, and we'll also speak more about this idea of finding a community here in Berlin. This podcast is um, trying to engage with Berlin, what Berlin is today, and that means also engaging with listeners as well. So if you have any ideas as listeners, um, 
on what we could cover, things that you think that maybe we'd find interesting or you think that we could discuss in an interesting manner then please do get in contact with us on twitter or facebook um, and let us know your thoughts on other things that we could cover and other parts of berlin that we could explore absolutely it sounds great and people already do i already got an email two weeks ago from someone who proposed a subject and we're actually now already making um yeah the recordings for that which is super exciting because i've never met this person before and he's sort of like taking me into this entire new uh, world basically and i'm very very anxious also to let you all know uh, how that is going it will have to wait a couple months before that is all um yeah sort of finished but but that is exactly what uh, what this is all about so i'm very happy you brought it up so much mystery about it there is there is there will be much, much more mystery um yeah all right shall we get back to the show i think so and we're back we explored a little bit why people come to Berlin and also start discussing the difference between Jewish and Hebrew identity. Language plays a key role in that position and identity. So first up is Hanno Hauenstein. So I'm a journalist and an author. I come from Regensburg, from Bavaria, and I, I started to think about that. I came up with the idea of a print magazine when I was working as a journalist in Israel in Jaffa. Hanno isn't Jewish, but he spent a lot of time working in Israel as a journalist and he learned to read, write and speak Hebrew. And together with Itmar Gov came up with the idea of a German Hebrew art magazine, which they've named Aviv. The first of its kind to be published in Germany and Israel. So basically all the texts that we feature are are translated. That means that all of the Hebrew texts that we got are translated into German and the other way around. Um, we also have texts for, for which were translated into both languages from the from English. For example, there's an Iranian contributor um, whose text was written in, in English that we translate to Hebrew and to German. Um, and you, since Hebrew is a language that goes from right to left and German goes from left to right, we, you can open and, and read the magazine from both sides. The design of the magazine, the fact that Hebrew and German somehow meet in the middle of the magazine, one coming from left to right, one coming from right to left, it also becomes a metaphor for the fact that these two languages are actually very connected to each other, as Hanno, Tal and Yael all explained to us. Um, there was a vibrant publishing, Hebrew publishing culture in Berlin, not not just like in, in Jewish circles, also in literature. Um, this is something we uh, revive might might seem a little bit presumptuous, but like we, we I think we do take upon a certain tradition in a way. These kind of like uh, connections between those two cultures are, are are feasible if you dig into it. Like there's many words and terms that. Um, you can find in the German language, which uh, are, have Hebrew origin and and came over Yiddish into the German language, like I don't know, Roch, or like you say Guten Roch, you say Tachles. You, th- there's many there's many words that you could name as examples for that. There's a growing uh, uh, scholar movement uh, dealing with questions of Hebrew as a non-geographical uh, uh, language. And this, this group, uh, they're arguing that actually Hebrew was alive and kicking through this whole time. And it can also thrive today without the context of the political context of Israel. 
which for someone coming from Israel is, of course, a very interesting realization. And that's why it's so interesting that for both Yael and Tal, Hebrew became an important instrument to think about their identity, which was, of course, emphasized when they moved to Berlin. So I realized how fragile uh, language-based cultural identity is because if we stay here, which is not certain to me at all, I mean I have no idea, but I I don't have any decision whatsoever to stay or to leave, but if we stay and if my kids eventually become, uh, I mean live their adult life here or somewhere else in the world which is not Israel, and they marry someone who is not Israeli, and their whole identity is based on language, and then the, the next generation doesn't speak Hebrew, then it raises questions, right? Maybe there should be more layers to it. But what if you're not coming from outside of Germany, or even Berlin? What if you're brought up here, being both German and Jewish? Max Cholik, the poet we spoke to at the beginning of the program, busied himself with these questions concerning German-Jewish heritage. I wrote my diploma, my master thesis on the on anti-Semitism in the GDR, uh, early early GDR, and um, that was probably a way to reconstruct the um, reality of my grandfather. So, whereas my first poetry book was dedicated to my father, the diploma, like the master thesis, was dedicated to my grandfather. Max's grandfather was a concentration camp survivor who, after the war, became a strong supporter of the GDR. Max never knew his grandfather, but was raised to be well aware of the dark patches in Germany's history. Pretty much raised with this second-generation cliché of the um, the coffer. Uh, mm, yeah, the suitcases under your bed. So of course that was very present. My father showed me like images of my. Um, ancestors and and said look this is they were killed by the Nazis and this is the same people who are living here today so whatever's gonna happen uh, we're gonna be smart we're gonna leave Um, so that was something that concerned me when I was little and I was thinking about that a lot about leaving and about um, like living among potential murderers if you want so For Max growing up, this meant he gradually became more aware of this extra layer in his identity. He sought to challenge this question through artistic expression. The fact that something is real, that you have the suitcases under your bed, doesn't doesn't mean that it's not also a cliché. So you um, you find a lot of poetry concerned with uh, a Jewish position, or you see movies, or you see theater pieces or stuff, and they've they're always using the same images, which is like candles. Uh, suitcases uh, and then some some reference or the other to the Shoah. So you really have a um, um, like a very well-established idea of what a Jewish representation would mean. Um, representing the Jew uh, would always be concerned with anti-Semitism, Shoah history and Israel. What came across to us when we were interviewing Max was that this cliché, this representation of Jewish people as the victim, this wasn't something that Max was comfortable with. At least right now it feels like for the second generation fear um, was much stronger and for me um, 
rage is the the um, a closer like closer to what I feel about um, Jewish identity in Germany right now. Mm -hmm. It's more about empowerment, about um, inglorious poets, mm -hmm. um, revenge, fantasies of of um, of uh, retribution, uh, stuff that you don't usually connect to uh, the idea of victimhood and Jewish victimhood especially because you know nothing is more sacred than the Holocaust victim. He articulated his views in a manifestation called Disintegration, a congress on contemporary Jewish positions in German society. We're, we're focusing on uh, questions of Jewish empowerment because obviously uh, anti-Semitism is a very powerful discourse that uh, has strong effects on however Jews construct themselves. Uh, the German gaze has been extremely important for me to consider myself Jewish and the way I consider myself Jewish. Uh, just one example, if people come to your school, uh, television uh, stuff, uh, uh, journalists, and they ask you all the time, do you feel comfortable in this country? Obviously, it's going to produce the, 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 the exact difference uh, of what they wanted to, to, to hear. So suddenly, you start to wonder about... Um, what it is that separates you from all the others. Um, and that is a very simple, a very simple way of thinking about how um, construction of the other works through uh, a German desire for um, normality. So what they're trying to do is emancipate a Jewish position, or maybe even more disentangle the Jewish position from that of the German one. And that looking for such a perspective doesn't come without conflict becomes clear when I ask about the negative connotations of the word disintegration. The actual word integration means that you ha it's like a process where several um, groups or identities find a peaceful living together instead of one group having to adjust to another group. And so that's and, and when I realized that I think integration is actually a very beautiful and, and peaceful understanding of how to live together so that's why I thought like then opposing it with disintegration mm -hmm. you know isn't isn't that a very negative approach mm -hmm. towards this whole idea of living together it's confrontational it's it's an idea of diversity that that maintains that um, difference is all right you know after after 45 Germany was an ethnically cleansed politically stratified country and I think that's a fa that that was the actual fantasy that the Nazis um, had sold to the Germans, and I think that was appealing to Germans, and that like remains appealing to a lot of people. You know, it's 50 AFD is in 50 with um, right now it'll be 15 percent of people voting for them, and I think this is this is especially about an idea of um, quietness, peace, whatever you call Spießbürgerlichkeit, um, which I strongly oppose. And um, to and disintegration is designed to confront this idea of peaceful, non non conflictual um, uh, society. I think there's no society without conflicts, and there's no um, coexistence without conflicts. And disintegration is there to to produce a space in which. Um, we are able to have conflicts again. I guess between German and Jews, there's almost no conflict possible because everything is, is designed to be so harmonious and so, so wonderfully quiet that it reminds me of Nietzsche's idea of, of 
the quietness of the cemeteries. Nietzsche says the quietness uh, the, the bourgeois wishes for himself is the quietness of, of, of cemeteries. So I think this story that we've now covered over two episodes is rich in diversity, complexity and detail, of which we have only really been able to scratch the surface through the medium of podcast. But it speaks more broadly of the ability of societies and cultures to accept plurality and accept that not all humans will choose to live in exactly the same way. I think it is possible to think of a world where we can all make room for each other and learn to live with differences rather than fear them. So there you have it. A view from a couple of Berlin tour guides on a community that could comprise as many as 60,000 people. Next week, we discuss China with its 1.3 billion people. Only kidding. So what we try and aim to do is give you a glimpse of an incredibly pluralistic, imaginative, and of course, a community that contributes to Berlin's dynamic multiculturalism and diversity. We want to massively thank everyone that shared their stories. Yael Sharil. Max Cholik, Hanno Hauenstein, and Tal Alon. Further information on each of the interviewees and their projects, for example, about the brand new and beautiful magazine Aviv, can be found on the show notes. Original music by Dennis Wouters and Mark Schilders. Denis. Denis. Wouters. Wouters. And Mark Schilders. Mark Schilders. That's it. That's the podcast, The Jewish Community in Berlin, Part 2. I hope you enjoyed it. Walrus and Izzy, or Otter, or Otter, out. A 4000 Hertz Production 2016